So good morning and welcome again. This morning I'll give the uh, sixth talk in a series of talks on transforming the judgmental mind. And as I've uh, mentioned in some of these past talks, all of which are on Dharma Seed, my uh, motivation is partly to uh, explore and share a very vital topic for our practice, and partly to, uh, in a sense, share the creativity of a process that I'm in the midst of, of uh, writing a book on this theme. And uh, I'm inviting uh, stories or insights that you might have, that you might want to share, and you can even uh, have a pseudonym if you go in the book, change your gender to the extent that that's appropriate, uh, and so forth, uh, possibly change your age, and so forth. So, great opportunities. So what I'll do is very, very briefly review some of the orienting framework of this approach, and I'll give an overview of the four stages. And I think the bulk of the time I'm going to come back and particularly work with the first stage of practice. Partly came out of a request last time to look at supports. Partly uh, it's related to the fact that if we're working with the judgmental mind, most likely we're a lot of the time in this first stage. So first, some uh, orientation. And again, there was the question that came up earlier, how is uh, a judgment in the sense of judgmental mind different simply from an observation? And uh, a distinction between a reactive judgment that would, we would typically call judgmental and a non-reactive, non-judgmental statement, which I sometimes use the word Discernment could be a noticing or an observation is central to this work. Uh, and so the invitation is to think of judgments that are reactive, meaning that there's some kind of automatic pushing away or grabbing hold. And I'm particularly focusing on negative judgments. So when we've uh, sampled some in the past, uh, we have found that like 30% of them, at least on Wednesday mornings, are about driving. <laughs> you know, if I can remember some from the past, it would be like, you know, SUVs should not be tolerated. Or uh, does anyone want to share in one sentence a judgment that's fresh with you this morning? And I'll repeat them related to driving or something else? You just speak up. You know, what's, uh, I, I shouldn't be late. I shouldn't be late, right? Uh, that can be about oneself, about another, uh, any other. I shouldn't be late, right? I'm, yeah, I'm not a morning person. And what, what we have found that's interesting is that we want to listen for the tone of voice because we could actually have the same content of words and one would be judgmental and one wouldn't be. So you could have, you could say, I'm not a morning person and be rather descriptive 
non-reactive, non-judgmental, and you could also say the exact same thing in a uh, reactive way. We are very sensitive to that distinction, interpersonally and when we relate to people. We are very sensitive to tone, body language, and so forth. So the kind of uh, uh, judgment that we're looking for is the kind that's reactive. I've mentioned again uh, uh, a number of times that uh, we use in English the word judgment for both kinds of uh, statements, ones that are judgmental and ones that are not. That's confusing, right? And so I'm going to be using the word judgment today as shorthand for something that's judgmental. There can be a noticing or an observation or discernment which is not judgmental. Again, it could be actually the exact same content. I give the example often of being a teacher. It's very important for me to make observations, to notice things where people I work with might develop, improve, and so forth. And uh, I can notice something about someone and I can give feedback to that person that's caring, compassionate, <clears throat> helpful for the process of learning, and I can be judgmental. I can be reactive. There can be something in my own being maybe which is impatient with the pace of learning. And, I, uh, and someone will pick up on that immediately. And so I tend to define uh, judgment in the sense of judgmental as some kind of noticing or observation or discernment linked with reactivity. It's the reactivity that has two forms, grabbing hold and pushing away. And I'm mostly focusing on the negative ones, the pushing away, that person is so full of himself, you know, that presidential candidate, dot, 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 <laughs> you know, and um, <clears throat> watching some of the debates, uh, judgmental mind is the, what the, as they say, the lingua franca, you know, that phrase means the basic, basic way of speaking, <laughs> being judgmental. Um, so it's very common. Um, the reason I'm looking at this and have been interested in this, it's actually surprising. In my own background, I wasn't so interested in this theme. When I started practicing, I noticed a lot of judgments. I would, in the sense of judgmental, I would, I would track them. And, and at a certain point, uh, at a, a kind of a, a challenging transitional part of my life, I noticed I was on a retreat and noticed a very large amount of very harsh self-judgments. And I think we know that harsh self-judgments can be debilitating, can be connected even with, uh, in extreme forms, with depression, or very, uh, very difficult states. And we experience these quite often. This, these are very, uh, very common. Uh, and there, there's something particularly about self-judgment, which I think... Uh, is particularly linked with recent uh, cultural uh, what um, development or manifestation, particularly in the West. Uh, when the Dalai Lama, whose birthday may be today, someone said it might be, when the Dalai Lama first encountered Westerners judging themselves harshly, he did not understand the phenomenon. And he said he took uh, two years of talking with psychologists and so forth to understand it. Now, there are plenty of other issues 
in his culture and in all cultures, all cultures have many ways to engender suffering. Uh, we have some particular ones, and self-judgment may be one of them. And so there's a very clear connection of self-judgment to many forms of suffering. There's a very clear connection of judgment of others to difficulty in relationships, in intimate relationships, work relationships. They're very strong, right? And they stay with us, you know. I remember being in my local swimming pool and um, having someone come in the pool who somehow triggered in my memory system a memory from like eight years ago when this person was very aggressive and like when I was swimming in the same lane, pulled my leg. <laughs> Which I didn't like. And I think at the time I was probably judgmental and it stayed in my system. I saw this person again eight years later. It was right there. Do you know? We know that, right? We know that, the, uh, as it were, the neural pathways were triggered. And one of the things that happens is that our judgmental mind is very easily triggered by all sorts, particularly by difficult experiences. Uh, and I think we know that. We, we can see how they make uh, interpersonal relationships difficult. There are, as I've tried to convey, uh, whole sets of uh, social judgments, socially conditioned judgments, typically linked with members of certain groups according to gender or ethnicity or age or sexual orientation, religion and so forth, which uh, these, particularly the negative judgments, which actually go hand in hand with the positive judgments in the sense of judgmental because there's typically in-groups and out-groups according to all these categories. Those are very thick, right? Those are clearly deeply connected with uh, social conflict, with internalization of negative messages, internalization of positive messages, which are unwarranted, right? And so forth. And so we can see on the social level that the judgmental mind is quite influential and often not discussed. You know, it's very... Judgments are very powerful in <clears throat> the political world. You know, uh, we can, that's not hard to see. You know, uh, one thing that we notice when we study the judgmental mind is that when the judgmental mind is there, uh, typically um, compassion is not there, empathy is not there, wanting to understand is not typically there. It tends to be a polarized state where we polarize either uh, some voice in myself with some part of myself or some voice in myself with another. Right? So does that give enough sense of that distinction? Yeah, yeah. And it's very, the distinction is very crucial because the approach that I take is that uh, judgments actually can carry important information in the sense of judgmental. They're not simply the enemy. Get rid of judgments, bad, suppress them defeat them. But rather, they can carry information. Uh, I think we see this a lot, for example, probably most obviously, when we have judgments, let's say, related to social justice. You know, we may see something quite important related to something being wrong, unjust, etc. 
and we can still be very reactive and judgmental. Clearly, what we're noticing is important. Arguably, the reactive judgmental quality is going to make our attempt to make things better harder and maybe dysfunctional. You know, and so I've mentioned how I've sometimes given workshops on this theme to activists who describe being judgmental as, at least the ones who came to the workshop, as a big issue, right? And I think we can see that, right? You can see that in political discourse. So it's a, it's a crucial topic. So the approach that I take is that there, there can be insight, there can be gifts of the judgmental mind, but what we need to do is to separate out the reactivity from the discernment, from the noticing, you know? Again, if I'm a teacher and I'm judgmental towards a student, it's very important for me to kind of clean that up, right? And to preserve the insight but work through the reactivity. That's the shorthand uh, model of how transformation occurs. And uh, in the uh, work that I've done with people over about the last uh, 15, 14, 15 years, which followed several fairly intense personal periods of working with this, both in you know, with mentors and with in, uh, in retreats and so forth. Um, there are a lot of tools that I have found to be helpful and I've sort of assembled a toolbox. Uh, and generally, and I'll be brief on this, generally I've mentioned how the approach that I take is twofold. And on the one hand, we look carefully at judgments, we use mindfulness, we study them, we look carefully at them. We also, and this is what the four-stage model is about, we go into them, we see their roots, we see what's driving them, and we also uh, uh, learn how to transform the roots and essentially work through the judgmental mind through a process of direct mindfulness, inquiry, looking more deeply, going more deeply into the roots, going into what's unconscious, and transforming what's there. Happy story. The end of the story is similar to a, um, a bumper sticker that uh, is available. Non-judgment day is near. <laughs> you can Google it and put it on your car. And, but anyway, the, the, the good news is that this is both very deep uh, and very workable. Um, so this first approach is this direct approach, and then I found extremely useful what I call an indirect approach. And this, for a lot of people, may be primarily what they do. This is more or less developing uh, what I call awakened qualities. And particularly, you know, when I work with people, we work with heart qualities like loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness. You can see how forgiveness would be very important with the judgmental mind. Forgiveness, joy, equanimity, gratitude. And that these, these qualities are very central. And for a lot of people, particularly if there is a very, very strong judgmental mind, spending time in these more beautiful states, or actually just being with beauty and the forest, the mountains, with art, with music, and so forth, um, is very crucial because it essentially uh, points to and gives us the experience over and over again of being in non-judgmental states. 
which is actually very crucial in a multitude of ways for the transformative process, that it gives us a way of balancing, it gives us a way of um, <clears throat> being able to shift out of judgmental states when we're stuck. When we have the qualities of loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness, we can bring them directly when we have this difficult moment at three in the morning, four in the morning, something difficult's happened the last day, and we're, we're actually stuck in the judgment. I think we all know that. Or, you know, something particularly challenging, difficult has happened, and we're being overwhelmed by the judgmental mind. Then we need ways of actually getting out of it, temporarily, you know, to shift out of it. And these heart qualities are very, very crucial. Developing self-compassion that we can go to when the judgmental mind arises. So both of these approaches are crucial, what I'm calling the direct and the, the indirect approach. There's a, there's a wonderful poem by uh, <clears throat> John O'Donohue, which really brings forth these two aspects of both essentially going into difficulties and going into wonderful states. And this is really, I think, uh, something like that rhythm is actually how transformation occurs. Have you noticed that? That we need to be able to go into difficulties and, we, and part of the way that we're supported is that we can access beautiful states. And we'd prefer that spiritual practice was just about accessing beautiful states all the time. Have you ever had that thought that this is the way it should work? <laughs> Have you ever had the insight that it doesn't quite work like that? <laughs> I think if we put on our publicity for Spirit Rock, if we put in our publicity for Spirit Rock, come, develop wonderful insights into your most painful experiences. <laughs> Hang out with difficulty. <laughs> Go into experiences that you never thought could be so dreadful. <laughs> Well, uh, <clears throat> that's not what they teach in public relations, is it? Uh, but that's the truth, actually, of, of what we explore. We have to have this rhythm of being able to go into difficult experiences, but the capacity to go into the beautiful experiences both gives us the perspective and the energy to go into the difficult ones and also gives us concrete resources and tools and techniques. So this is a, this is a poem which uh, uh, I think quite beautifully captures both aspects, which is I think really what our lives are about and what our, the learning process is this interesting rhythm between the two, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> this is called a bayonet, which I think, uh, I think it's an Irish word meaning blessing. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the crock of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, 
May there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you as invisible, an invisible cloak to mind your life. <clears throat> In terms of the direct path, I found it helpful, and we explored this uh, quite a bit last time, to look into uh, a four-stage model, which I found useful in working with people. Uh, the first stage, which I'll look into more depth in uh, in a moment, I, I call exploring judgments and accessing their hidden roots. And this is where we move from our more ordinary, taken-for-granted experience more automatic, where we're simply judgmental, when we're judgmental. And we start to look at judgments, we bring mindfulness, we bring a, an array of tools to bear, we start to look more deeply into it, and a, a lot can happen. We'll come back to that. Uh, the second stage I talk about as uh, coming to know our core limiting beliefs. What we find when we spend a lot of time in the realm of judgments is that they seem to be driven, particularly the ones that are most common, most regular, most persistent, they seem to be driven by uh, almost like models that are beneath the surface. And I gave uh, a lot of models of these, or I should say examples of these last time. You know, uh, one that I gave was uh, a child is told at age four, don't be angry internalizes it, develops the internal model, anger is bad, judges himself or herself pretty soon after that when, that when he or she gets angry, judges other kids for being angry, finds that that model, that pattern of judgment is pervasive. You know? And maybe at age 30, age 40, starts to see that, you know, does meditation, does therapy, finds a way to work with that. <clears throat> that would be an example of a core limiting belief. It's essentially a negative belief. You know, um, I gave another example of uh, one that was with someone I worked with last week um, who found on investigation there was a limiting belief, uh, I need to be right, basically. If you fill it out, you know, it's like, I need to be right. And when we look back, it actually came also from childhood, from a situation that's understandable where the child maybe is accused of something, and if the accusation is uh, born through, the child doesn't get something that the child wants. And so it became important for the child to defend himself or herself to the parent. I didn't do that. My brother did, <laughs> right? And um, this person found that that habit which developed in this model, I need to be right, became pervasive as a young person and as an adult and found this model there in all sorts of interactions and actually made relationships more difficult. I need to be right. <clears throat> I was talking with someone a day or two ago who was looking into this and 
found, uh, was asking, you know, I've looked a lot at judgments. Is there a, a kind of a core limiting belief that I have? And she thought that the core limiting belief was something like, um, uh, I'm not really smart enough. You know, I'm not so smart. And she reflected back again. A lot of these come directly out of childhood situations where uh, she said that she was from a family where, where there were a lot of big personalities. They were very opinionated. And what was most valued was to be smart and funny. She got the message, particularly as a middle child, you were neither smart nor funny. And she found that uh, when she looked at her life in her 50s, that judgment was still there. You know? And I think, can you get the sense of this and have a sense of what might be there for you? And so, um, in the second stage, we come to see those. Some of these also are related to social conditioning. You know, we can, we can see what we've internalized in terms of gender or sexual orientation. Any person who is on the lower uh, or on the, the bottom rung of a hierarchy in terms of ethnicity, gender, age, and so forth is internalizing negative messages, right? that form core beliefs that can be quite operative. And I'm sure many of us have worked with them, worked with these that, that we've, you know, it could be, um, you know, could, could be uh, as a woman, I won't be as capable. Or it could be, you know, again, these are often expressed at a very young age. As a woman, I won't be as capable of as, as a man. And again, there are the positive judgments, which are the flip side, which are actually just as pernicious, you know, which would be an assumption of superiority which can be there as well. I think I'm going to look at that more next, next time. Those are very interesting. But you can, do you get a sense of how there are these core limiting beliefs that we can be in touch with? Uh, again, they're, they're quite varied. There, we, last time we talked about how there actually are a lot of very common core beliefs. People who have traumatic experiences when they're young, often a core belief develops. You know, where, you know, people come from uh, families where there was a divorce at age five, at age seven, at age 10. They, you know, if young children may think something bad happened, it's my fault. And that can be a kind of core belief which I've seen in quite a few people. Another one might be, if I get close to people, they'll leave me. A lot of young children develop something like that. And the thing about core beliefs is they're not beliefs in the sense of being consciously held. They're beneath the surface. They're often unconscious. They rule us and we don't know it. Is that familiar? You know, there are a lot of these and it can take a lot of work to get there and to know what they're about. And then the uh, third, third phase is, the, is where we have the hopeful sense that even though we've repeated the uh, negative core beliefs, whether from personal conditioning or uh, social conditioning, they can be changed. They've repeated themselves three million times. We can actually go down a different route and develop what, what I call transform beliefs and work through them. You know, and so uh, we could develop a different uh, way of understanding anger. 
not so hard to imagine. So one could have a very uh, a sense of anger. Anger is a part of me, and uh, it's okay, right? I could, and that might take a lot of work to get to. Or the person who says, I need to be right, could come to uh, a different way of understanding. Again, it's, gonna, it's not a matter of just saying, oh, I'll just have a different attitude. We're talking about a process of inner work which, which I think needs quite a number of resources. That person could come to a way of um, being in the world which says, you know, I mean, if, you know, if we had to frame it, it could be, uh, I think when, we, when I worked with this person who had that, his, you know, sometimes it's a logical opposite, you know, instead of anger is bad, anger is okay. For this person who had the view, I need to be right, I think, I think what he came to as what kind of unified his, trans, you know, his transformative work was something like, uh, um, I'm fine whatever other people think of me. That was actually when he got to the root, it was something like that. And I mentioned last time how one person found she had the core belief, uh, divorced women cannot be happy. Again, social conditioning. And her transformed belief was, I am a beautiful, radiant being. <laughs> and that's what actually was the one which, which uh, uh, catalyzed her transformative work. And then there's once, even when you have that sense, there's a tremendous amount of work, fourth stage, to stabilize and integrate this in our daily life. This is actually a model, I think, for how we work with anything that is beneath the surface, unconscious, an old and deep habit, conditioning of any kind. Yeah. Uh, that we go through something like these four stages. We develop resources, we approach the, the uh, area, we start to get insight into the deeper roots of it. We come through the other end. We see in a different way. And we, uh, and we find ways to really stabilize the transformation. You know, I think any kind of major change that gets that unconscious material. And again, one thing that's interesting about this model that I, I want to point out is that this is really a model of the transformation of ignorance that these core limiting beliefs are largely unconscious and they represent a kind of uh, deep ignorance that came out of our own difficult life experiences, that we internalize a deluded way of looking at things, whether it's because of personal history or social conditioning. And this is really the model that comes uh, both out of Buddhist practice and out of a great deal many other cultures that the problem is essentially ignorance. You know, generally, across cultures, some approach the core problem of life as that there's ignorance. We don't know. We're deluded in certain ways, and that knowledge and insight are possible. That's the model, I think, which animates Spirit Rock. It's a hopeful model, right? The other model is the model of evil. You know, that the problems in the world are due to evil. These guide uh, many countries' foreign policies, including our own at times, right? It's, it's actually um, a model that, you again, you find in different cultures. In the West, I think we've been deeply conflicted between whether we have a model that the core problem is ignorance or that the core problem is evil. 
and it's conflicted. And even if you look at, uh, you know, uh, Christian theology, you know, if, you st- if one would ever study Christian theology, you would find that historically there's been something called, quote-unquote, the problem of evil, which is that for a lot of people, evil is incoherent in Christian theology because God is supposed to be omniscient. So how can there be some independent evil principle? Do you get that? So, um, so it's, it's, a, it's a model which is actually has a lot of uh, inner contradictions within the larger system of, of theology or religion. So I think, um, you know, I think ignorance is a very, is, a, is, a, is an optimistic way to look at the world's issues. Of course, all of this is about how do we look at you know, the, the roots of suffering. So I think it's, it's an ongoing inquiry, but it's interesting, isn't it, that you have these two models across culture, and I think two models very much in Western culture and in others. You have the, the model of ignorance, which you especially find from the Greeks, kind of the model behind science, and then you have the model of evil, which comes out of different sources. So this model of transformation is a model of the transformation of ignorance, of where we're deluded, where we're driven by uh, unconscious tendencies. More emphasis on the first stage, because for most of us, that's where we're living a lot of the time. So, and we had a request last time, particularly to talk about what does uh, support mean. So, first, first stage, um, what we do initially is we gather resources. It's as if we are climbing a big mountain and we need to get equipped. And so, a lot of us have been doing this over the years. We gather resources. We find a community of like-minded people. We get support from community, from friends, from mentors, from teachers. We start, uh, in this case, practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness is a core tool here. We uh, start practicing uh, loving-kindness, compassion. We develop these resources. We uh, practice ethically. We develop uh, ethical resources, very, very crucial, very, very crucial supports. We study teachings, we develop understandings of the roots of ignorance, for example, of uh, how different approaches understand the problems. After this initial collection of resources, which you know, could be, for a lot of us, that could be you know, three years of our life developing initial resources. Um, then we have, uh, then we deepen really in the, the core practices and we apply it in this case to judgmental mind. So we develop mindfulness with judgments and I've talked about how there are these several ways of working with mindfulness initially. Partly we set our radar up to watch judgments, we notice them we make labels, we're at meetings, we're at family gatherings, we say, oh, there's a judgment, oh, there's a judgment coming at me. Oh, we watch, we watch presidential debates, we know, oh, judgment. <laughs> oh, judgment. Oh, you know, and so forth. You know, we, uh, you know, watch a, a television situation comedy, no judgments. <laughs> you know, 
Notice the distinction between judgment and discernment. Right? We, we notice that. We study that in ourselves. We study that in others. Uh, we also explore judgments. We can use the technique, which we've sometimes looked at in this Wednesday gathering, uh, I think was developed by Michelle McDonald Smith and popularized by many people, a technique called RAIN, where we actually explore the judgmental mind when it's there. And sometimes we can do this much as in the guided meditation we did after the fact. You, you've had a lot of judgments. You um, Later, you had a lot of judgments during the day. Maybe they came out of a particular interaction. Later in the day, you meditate for 15 minutes and then you call forth the judgment to be present. And we can use this technique called RAIN, which stands for recognize, accept or allow, investigate, and develop non-identification or not taking it personally. That we can actually be with the judgment, see what it's like in the body. Very, very crucial. Notice what it's like, explore it. I think we have to explore judgments a thousand times. See what it's like in the body. You can't get right to stage two or three by thinking it out, I'm sorry to say. You know? And in fact, most of the ways that I work with people to get through stages two, three, and four are experiential. Same, same with number one, but they're more experiential that we get through it that way. So we, we recognize, oh, there's a judgment, we name it. We, when it's strong, we accept, yes, it's there, I don't want to necessarily get rid of it, let me just study it. And if it's at a level where it's not overly intense, not overwhelming, we can study it and be mindful, investigate it. What's it feel like in the body? What are the typical storylines? We have to get very familiar with it. As we get more familiar with judgments, we can notice them more quickly when they arise, even at difficult moments. And we won't be so taken away by them. We'll notice them there. We can investigate the, uh, the patterns by which they develop. We can see, oh, I'm typically triggered into judgment as we study it more. Oh, I'm typically triggered into judgment by this sort of thing. When someone says this or does this, I talked about how in a very important point in my own investigation, I found I was triggered when someone, in, in a sense, didn't listen to me. Or, or, you know, we could say, you know, some people would say, didn't show respect, right? Didn't listen uh, in some ways, ignored what I was saying, changed the subject, etc. And I found that was particularly, that took me right, would take me right into judgments when I was exploring it. So we investigate both in meditation, we can also investigate in daily life. What are my patterns? What are my patterns of triggering, of being triggered? Very crucial to see that, you know. So you go into a situation and you know, oh, I'm likely to be triggered. Let me study judgments. And I've recommended that we go to difficult situations as if they are research projects. Go to family gatherings and say, whatever else happens, I'm going to study the judgmental mind. Okay. Some, some of you may not have that challenge. Some of you may. <laughs> or go to difficult, difficult encounters. So the I is investigation, the N is not taking it personally or not identifying. So you study judgments, we study judgments as if we're scientists, seeing what they're like, what are the patterns, not taking them personally, not instantly resisting, not so easy, right? So we do that. I mentioned how we develop the heart practices, very, very crucial. I'm not emphasizing those 
today, but they're, they're, they're very crucial. You know, we start to, we start to uh, see the judgments. At a certain point, we can actually have a certain uh, balance and see, oh, here's that judgment occur. This is from a, <clears throat> a book called The Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber, where, where the villain of the, of the book is someone called the Duke. And he has a very, very mindful understanding of, it, of, uh, of his own uh, judgments and his own shortcomings. He says, uh, we all have flaws, the Duke said. Mine is being wicked. <laughs> Not taking it personally. <laughs> okay. um, so we, we developed the heart practices. And again, I, I emphasize a lot uh, being aware of what, things, what the judgments are like in the body because I find that I can often uh, tell more quickly that a judgment is present by how my body is. It can get tense, you know, so it's really important for me. I tend, my heart tends to be tight, my body a little constricted, my hands tight, my shoulders down a little bit. And if I find myself in those postures, sometimes there, very often there could be uh, some triggering has occurred, so body very crucial. <clears throat> and then we have some further practices which take us more deeply take us to start to be able to be aware of the uh, core beliefs. We may get some glimpses. And there are these further accessing practices. One of them I gave last time called the dropping down practice, where we either in a meditation, maybe at the end of a meditation or sometimes right in the moment, we uh, go from the level of the judgment and we just bring the attention to the body, to the area of the heart, the upper body, and we just see what's there. And we do this over and over again. This is a way of using the body to access the unconscious. It's a technique which we can use for judgments. We can also use it very valuably whenever there are repetitive thoughts. We can go right into what, into the body and hang out there, letting go of the figuring out of the mental operation. And we trust the body to reveal something. And sometimes we're with the uh, body and we have a sense, oh, I was just staying with judgments. Actually, I'm really uh, angry. Or we might have, oh, there's a lot of sadness there. I've really been judgmental of this person. And I go into the body and I may realize, oh, there's sadness. There. I'm really sad about how this relationship is. And if we stay at the level of judgment, we don't know that. And what I found that when we drop down, we, all, we sometimes have emotions. We sometimes have memories. It takes uh, doing this practice many, many times before we have that kind of easy access to what's beneath. We have to do it without expecting anything a hundred, a thousand times. At a certain point, I found in my own experience, and again, based on our access to the body, we'll have different experiences. I could find that I could actually uh, quite quickly get a sense of what was driving the judgment, could quite quickly go to a level of emotion, that sadness, hang out there. And when I actually could go there and be with the emotion, the uh, judgment would tend to dry up. That's interesting, right? It's, it's actually a way of processing the judgment. And then I'm, it's one way that the reactivity gets worked through. When you go over and over again, it's like a child crying and something gets worked through. I go to the sadness, 30 times, 50 times, just for a minute or two, 
and something gets worked through in a small way, over time, there's some releasing of the reactivity. And then I can, then that's how I can use the insight, but the reactivity isn't there in the same way. You know, we can do that. You can do that with the uh, driver with the cell phone at the light who doesn't go right away. Drop down. Oh, oh, oh. Impatience. Oh, let me feel the impatience. Oh. And you don't get stuck in the judgment. That's one technique that you can use. And a second, uh, quite important technique is, particularly with negative judgments, is to try to get a sense of there being some kind of unpleasant sensation or emotion. Typically with negative judgments, there's going to be some negative emotion. Can we touch this? Can we feel this? Can we actually be with the pain of the situation? Often if we can do that, we don't go to the judgment. So I gave the story (coughs) of uh, interacting with this uh, director of the organization I worked with. He was the one who I thought didn't listen to me. And I went, you know, had this experience a lot, you know, and I would then, you know, at a certain point I could actually start to look at the judgmental mind in slow motion by trying to notice what actually I was experiencing right at that moment, right before I would go to the judgmental mind, before I would judge, he's not listening, why is he the director, you know, the harumph attitude. And... I I could actually, when I actually went in there with the intention to notice, everything went into slow motion. This very exciting aspect of work with judgment, at a certain point, with enough mindfulness, you can see things in slow motion. I was able to notice, oh, he didn't listen to me, that didn't feel good. I could notice the judgment starting to arise. Previously, they had just been automatic. Most of, initially, when we look at judgments, we'll see their bam, bam, right? They, they occur right away. With mindfulness, we can start to see it in slow motion. We can start to feel, oh, that didn't feel good. I could start to feel, oh, that didn't feel good at that moment of not being heard, rather than just immediately, you know, you know this guy is a fool or whatever. You know? And I could actually slow it down when I could actually feel the pain of not being listened to. It opened up the space of freedom. And I could then actually say something like, without reactivity, without judgment. You know, uh, the point I made is an important one for me. I hope we can come back to it. Right? Something like that. Non-reactive, but not giving up. You know, standing my ground, as it were. But that, that was only possible because I could actually touch the pain. And so this touching of the pain of judgments is really, really, uh, really, really crucial. <clears throat> another, another story. Let me see if I can find this. Um, this is something I heard also just a, just a few days ago from someone I work with. He was describing uh, working with his organization and uh, being a little overwhelmed by how much there was to do. And this, this, is, this is what he said. I actually, uh, uh, I actually wrote down uh, this. He said, in my work I've started to handle, this was, this was actually what he said in the context of reporting his experience. And I say this with his permission. You know, we, we made a recording, actually. In my work, I've started to handle the finances of an organization with whom we work. Right now, it's pretty chaotic. I just realized with all that I am doing, which is actually too much, that I didn't take care of paying the workers' comp insurance. Whoops. 
when I looked at my experience just now, I didn't, you know, uh, in a guided meditation, I realized, you know, he, he got in touch with the judgment. The judgment was, you know, basically very negative towards himself, as you could imagine. But he said, he, got, he basically got in touch with the pain of the situation for him. He said, I realize that I'm here with my tribe and there is this sinking down to the bottom of the Black Sea and the tribe members all turn their backs. This is his feeling of what was occurring. As if they won't speak to me because I failed them in this way. And that felt really bad. Painful in the heart in a sort of primal way. Like I'm out here without a tribe. You know? And so his ability to go to this level of pain was hard work, right? It's not easy. It required the support of the group. But having that understanding of the pain gave him some space so he didn't go right away to get caught in judgment. He could see the judgment forming. He also could have a sense of how it was, in this case, actually connected with a core belief. He could start to have a sense of, I need to be diligent to be a good person. You know, and he could actually, and, and I'm not diligent, therefore, you know, judgment. And he could actually start to get a sense of, you know, by the touching the pain was key. So this is very crucial. So if you have a judgment, another way to work with it that starts accessing these deeper levels is to touch what's painful. Not easy. You know, and we have to be able to do that in a way which is balanced. He was balanced touching this pain. If we're not balanced, if we're overwhelmed by the judgment, then it's good to use the heart practices. So his attitude towards this was more, more the sense of, oh, this is really painful. My core beliefs are being triggered. But I, want to, I just want to respond to it and deal with this and learn from it rather than going to my core beliefs. So he could take something which would trigger typically something very old and he would just say, I'm going to respond to it. But he, that was only because he could understand this territory. He started to get a sense both of a core belief and a different way of seeing it it was accessed by going into what was painful. So you have a sense of that, of that tool. And I'll just, I'll just end by saying that <clears throat> one of our Buddhist practices, which is so useful for this, is the practice of feeling the feeling tone. Remember feeling tone? The sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral every moment. It's a core practice. It's, you know, when you, those of you who know the teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness, know that three of them are kind of obvious. There's mindfulness of the body, first foundation. There's mindfulness of more or less thoughts and emotions, third foundation. There's mindfulness of some of the basic patterns of experience, fourth foundation. And then there's the second foundation, which is mindfulness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. How did that get in there? Why is that so important? And what we see, and this is the core teaching, is that when we're not aware of pain, we'll tend to be automatically reactive. When we're not aware of the pleasant, we'll tend to be automatically reactive and grasp. When we're not aware of the painful, we'll be automatically reactive and push away. Judgment is a form of this. This is the more primal mechanism. And so the practice which lets us monitor and know oh, this is unpleasant, this is pleasant, 
it's a part, it's a core part of our training. Do you see how if you did that, you know, as a training, you'd be much better with the judgments and being able to tune into the pain? So this is a training that you can do in all sorts of ways. You can just uh, look for in your meditation whenever there's something either pleasant or unpleasant. See, the pleasant or unpleasant isn't the problem. It's our reactions that's the problem. I told this once to a group I worked with that, you know, having all sorts of pleasurable experiences is not at all a problem. We could sit here in our meditation group all evening and eat chocolate all evening together and explore pleasure. And he said, let's, let's do it next time. <laughs> and so we did, but, but they actually could, could be with the pleasant and study it. It's actually pretty interesting. Actually, it was, the fourth piece of chocolate wasn't as pleasurable as the first. I learned this once when I lived in a household with a woman from Iraq who uh, often on Saturday nights made baklava. You ever tried all-you-can-eat baklava? <laughs> First piece of baklava, very pleasant feeling tone. Second piece, pretty good. Third piece, getting towards the neutral range. <laughs> Fourth piece of baklava getting towards the unpleasant range, right? Interesting, right? So you can study the pleasant, study the unpleasant. Study this when it's there in your experience. Meals are a great place to watch pleasant and unpleasant. Study the unpleasant in your body in meditation. Hang out with it. Study what it's like. Study your reactions. This is a foundational training for being able to do that with judgments. So those are, those are a few practices you know, uh, and resources, you know, starting with the mindfulness, the heart practices, the dropping down, being with the painful, training for that by studying feeling tone over and over again. And these are really uh, basic tools that help us to uh, work with these four stages and that I think you can see help us along so that the uh, transformation of very old patterns, for, for most of us, the hardest uh, uh, expressions of the judgmental mind were set up in childhood, for most of us. Maybe there are others that we take on a little later. And they have sometimes the quality of just being, how am I ever going to work through this one? You know? And yet they're workable. We have neuroplasticity, the neuroscientists say. We have the potential of freedom, the sages say. And so we can, uh, we can work through uh, all of our ignorance. We can come to a sense of freedom. Let me stop there and then I'll open to two questions. We have one question, Debbie, and then one right here so we can... Bring the microphone. When we were doing the guided practice during yeah. meditation, can you repeat what those uh, the steps were to the guided practice? Yeah, um, the steps were first to uh, bring to mind uh, a judgment that's had some force recently, last today, a few days ago, and I, I suggested something in the four to seven range on a scale of ten. In all of this work, as I think I mentioned last time, not to go to the most difficult, the most intense. 
in a sense, we, we develop our uh, capacity to work with judgments by working with judgments where they're workable, in the workable range, not in the overwhelm uh, zone. We won't learn very much with the most difficult. We'll, we'll learn by working with less difficult ones. So work with mild or moderately uh, difficult situations, you know, with yourself, at work, relationships, and so forth. So we start by choosing. And then the invitation was to, second step was to experience it, uh, sort of bring it to mind as if you're re-experiencing it, as if you're living it through again. So you could, in your imagination, be with the situation where you were judging yourself, you know, after, you know, be with yourself at three in the morning, judging yourself, what, just imagine yourself in that situation, or, you know, in an interaction where there's judgment occurring. And then thirdly, was to, uh, after letting that be there for a while, see what it's like in the body. What's it like in the mind? What are the stories? What's the narrative? Get really familiar with all of this. <clears throat> what are the emotions? You can also, I didn't give this instruction, you can also watch how it moves. How does it change? You stay with the judgment for a while, it might, you might start off with anger, it might go to sadness. It'll change. You can stay with it. Uh, and then, particularly with the negative judgment, he also gave the instruction to be with that quality of the painful, related to what I talked about just uh, a little while ago. I think those are the main, main parts. I think I also asked the question, can you recognize the voice? <clears throat> you know, is this, is this someone familiar? Is it uh, a voice from family or social authority or whatever? I think those are the main ones. Please, yeah. Uh, I find myself struggling with um, my judgment or my judgmental feelings toward my son's girlfriend who, um, through experience, has taught me that, that there are two people who really should not be together because they re reinforce each other's... Uh, Poor choices, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to figure out a way to be less harsh, but my discernment tells me it probably will never change. So I, mm -hmm. I, I'm having, I'm struggling with where to go from here. Yeah, where to go with that? Yeah, uh, um, <clears throat> it's a great, it's a great question. So um, I think it's important to uh, separate the observation from the interpretation. You know, we, we, I, I didn't bring in that distinction, but I think that it's helpful to make some kind of distinction like that. The observation might be they have very different styles or temperaments or whatever it is. The interpretation is it won't work. Okay, those are different, right? It'd be possible to, so you might consider a narrative where they have these differences and it does work. You know, uh, so I think it's important to know that, there's the, that there is an observation which is not the same thing as the interpretation. Yeah, that's, that's crucial. <clears throat> you can try to be, uh, and, it, and the interpretation may shut out certain other things that you uh, don't notice. So for example, you may, uh, the judgment will make it harder to be empathic uh, with them and you might, it may, might make it harder to see what really is working. Or how do they look at this, right? And to really to, to tune into that. Uh, so those are certain things that you can do just in your own mind. 
can be, and of course, you know, your interpretation may be borne out by what happens, that's, that's possible. Uh, but we want to, uh, uh, we want to look at that. And remember, we want to look at the difference between discernment and being judgmental. You could be discerning and notice these differences and you want to see where you're reactive, you know? You know, and where you're, I don't know, maybe you're, you know, judging your son for just not getting it or whatever, you know? Uh, you know, or doing, making the same bad choice once again or whatever. And so you can, and so we want to, again, separate the discernment or the observation from the reactivity. So you want to really uh, take responsibility for your own reactivity and investigate it. It may be rooted in past experiences. You may, you may uh, go to other emotions and need to open up to emotions like sadness or anger, hang out with them. That might take you through a process. Again, uh, the reactivity of being judgmental is never appropriate or is never a place to rest or to end. Having the observation and the discernment is very important, right? So those are, those are a few things. Of course, you know, I haven't even gone into how you might speak with them, <laughs> you know, and, and so forth. It's the whole, whole area. Yeah, I think maybe, just maybe one or two more. Uh, Lyle, so we'll wait for the mic. I hope that's helpful, a few, quite a few things, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know, since attending your uh, Transforming the Judgmental Mind retreat last September, I've yeah. really been processing, trying to get down and where some of my judgments come from, or all of my judgments. And, yeah. and the issue that I find, how do you handle things when, frankly, I know I'm right? You know, <laughs> uh, that... Uh, and I realize that's a judgment in its own statement, but you know, there's sometimes if, if 99 things have happened in the same way, where I come from, it's illogical not to assume the 100th one will not be the same. How do you, how do you process that So it's, that a, good it's a good question. The, the judgmental mind feeds on people who think they're right. <laughs> uh, now, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said. Uh, uh, fundamentally, we want to go back to that same distinction I just mentioned, the distinction between discernment and uh, being reactive. It's also between discernment and interpretation, or observation and interpretation. Now, you might see a situation quite accurately, and uh, that should be distinguished from being reactive about it. Being reactive about it is the issue. Having the discernment is or, or having the observation and you know saying as far as I know this seems to be the way things are right that's that's not judgmental you know there's like a cartoon I thought I remember of a um, uh, epitaph on a gravestone which said he had the right of way <laughs> maybe that's enough to say <laughs> right um, so it's like what you do with your discernment is crucial and again similar to the situation what you do with it you may be right you may uh, you know uh, but uh, being judgmental is another matter again being reactive about it might be oh 
you know, why don't they listen to me? Or, you know, whatever goes along with it. So they're probably, they're, we want to we wanna separate out whatever the noticing is from, as it were, all the baggage. The judgmental mind, I'm not saying you do this, but often the judgmental mind more or less says, I'm clearly right, therefore whatever I do is okay. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the second comment that we want to look at. So we want to look at where is their anger, reactivity, lack of empathy, because you know you're right. That's what we want to look at. And again, you want to also see, I, I don't know the specifics of the situation like I did with the other, but there may be a way in which you go from a noticing to an interpretation, in which the noticing might be uh, quite accurate. Like, like a great example that, that you gave, you could notice, okay, there's a pattern here, or uh, again, if we, were, if we were working further, I'd ask you to give the example and, and fill it out, but so I'm talking necessarily a little abstractly. Uh, but um, we basically see where you're, re you're reactive, where are you uh, really judgmental, uh, uh, you know, to what extent is there equanimity, you know? You know, you're right, you, as far as you know, you're seeing something accurately, and uh, what other emotions are there? Is there sadness? Oh, you know, I'm sorry it's going to happen this way or something. Just to, just to explore what's there, really, and to see what's extra beyond the discernment is the, basic, is the basic guidance. And probably with all of these situations, something I didn't mention, it's really good to do the heart practices. You know, in a situation where you think you're right about something or noticing something, to, to really emphasize compassion, emphasize empathy. You can have discernment at the same time as compassion or empathy. You can't have uh, being judgmental at the same time as empathy or compassion. They don't coexist. <clears throat> Judge, being judgmental is polarizing interpersonally. Does that give you some ways to go? Great, thanks. I'm going to do the last one here, please. And we'll thank you for your patience. I sometimes uh, watch uh, CNN and MSNBC, and yeah. on TV there's um, images and information about ISIS yeah. or ISIL, yeah. and I have judgments about them and the harm that they do to other people. Right. Right. So looking at um, ISIS, this is uh, probably up near level 10. <laughs> it's good to know that. And um, even in terms of what I was talking before about ignorance and evil, right? People use the word evil for, for ISIS. Uh, I think when you look at the details and the actual people, uh, you know, there may be more of a sense of compassion and, and uh, <clears throat> understanding. So, um, so I think, again, I recognize this, this is very high level, it's intense. Um, I think you know, in terms of our practice, I think really still try to have the commitment for understanding and wisdom and compassion. We, we have that in all situations. Some situations test that more than others, you know. Um, and uh, one can recognize that, the, you know, that these are horrible events and horrible actions. And, 
and still seek understanding and try to see what would a compassionate response mean. I mean, the, you know, I mean, re- understanding the history, I think, can be quite helpful. You know, I mean, uh, these things don't occur in a vacuum, right? And indeed, uh, you know, most analysts see uh, ISIS as impossible without the invasion of Iraq, for example. So it's complex, right? It's complex. Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, or certainly ISIS getting as strong as it does. But, and so there are, a lot of, there are a lot of things to look at. And so we can watch to see if we're becoming judgmental. And again, for something of such a level of intensity and difficulty, I think we practice the working with judgments with much less intense ones, recognizing this is kind of at the end of the spectrum. Um, so I hope I could say a lot more, but uh, I think that's... that's I hope that's helpful as a starting point to really, to really again distinguish the discernment, you know, and the you know maybe the uh, you know the sense of this being uh, tremendously painful, harmful, destructive, sad, and so forth, and then watch the you know watched where uh, again this is the teaching about feeling tone. It's actually the invitation is to be present some with the pain. Most conflicts escalate because neither side can hang out with the pain. And they get they go to extremes. I mean that's an understanding generally of conflict. And so we can do the feeling tone practice and learn to be with what's unpleasant. In this case, can you be with the, the difficult feelings? Watch the tendency to go very quickly to reactions or to interpretations. Not easy in this instance. Yeah, so probably could be a whole talk devoted to looking at that question, right? And how do we work with these extreme situations? And, you know, both in terms of understanding and in terms of response. Because I think, uh, you know, it's one reason I think that uh, all of what we're talking about is very important for anyone who's going to actually try to work with conflict and try to work with uh, conflict, with difficulty, with, uh, even with violence. I think the tools we're looking at here, in my mind, are fundamental for the training of anyone who would be a peacemaker, anyone who would try to deal with conflict. You know, maybe I'll come back. You know, in the past, I've sometimes given series of talks and discussions on the theme of conflict, which is a interest of mine, you know, multiple forms of conflict. And I think, so I think I would say connect your way of responding to the situation with the fundamental practice of seeking understanding, wisdom, compassionate response. Compassionate response can still be very, very strong response. So that's the beginning. (laughs) So thank you. Let's just sit now for a moment and see if there was something helpful from the morning that you want to take with you especially, an intention coming out of the morning. And then we finish by recognizing that we 
practice for ourselves, we practice for others, we practice for those close to us, we practice for the world. May our practice be a benefit to all. All includes us. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.